0: Running Light Ministry Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support
1: these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org.
0: Peter, you don't even know what we're doing this podcast, do you? (laughs) Not yet. Not even close, huh? But um, we are going to go through um, some articles that I found on the internet that I kind of, I mean, we could probably take every one and just break them all down, but I figured we would just kind of go through them. Because they all have to do with some really cool stuff. Um, things that we've talked about before, but, uh, you know, other stuff maybe we haven't talked about so much. This is kind of cool. Check this out. It's um, from the Washington Post. It says, sexually, uh, sexually active students must be reported to law enforcement or state officials, um, Oregon School District says. So this is really cool, man. Check this out. This is in Oregon. It says, teachers and staff in the Salem-Kaiser School District, which includes more than 40,000 students, were recently told that if they learn or merely suspect a student is sexually active, they must report it to law enforcement or state officials. Hmm. How old are these students? So one of them... Uh, Are the examples that they give It says anyone under the age of 18 But uh, it says during the presentation The district offered several specific examples Of when an employee needs to contact law enforcement These include a 15-year-old telling a teacher That she is having sex with her boyfriend And wants to learn about birth control Or a 17-year-old confiding in a teacher That his 16-year-old girlfriend is pregnant Another example, a 14-year-old boy confides in you that he was kicked out of the house after his parents discovered that he was in same-sex relationship. During the conversation, the student shares that he is engaged in sexual acts with his partner. The district claimed the policy is for teenagers' safety. Simply reporting to the state doesn't mean police are going to be knocking on the door of students, district spokeswoman, our spokeswoman said. Um, what it does allow for is an abundance of caution in ensuring that our children are safe so I thought that was kind of interesting huh yeah it's really weird <laughs> so <laughs> you know, it's really weird
1: it's very odd i don't I don't, I don't understand why they would do that but okay hey.
0: <laughs> so basically this is saying that teachers in the school district or staff if they hear of any kind of sexually active things they need to report it Right. So that's a lot of reporting. Yeah, That's what I imagine. Yeah, If this is a public school, which I imagine this is a public school thing, right? So, yeah, I guess it's for safety purposes, right? If kids are talking about stuff, you know, maybe they go, hey, you know, we need to report this to law enforcement. And then I'm sure the law enforcement just goes, oh, okay, we'll just make a note of it or something. <laughs> I can't imagine them, like, actually going on every single... Yeah. You know, report, right?
1: Yeah. So, I'm, yeah, because of that, I'm not really uh, certain about what the purpose of it is. Because uh, he says it's for the safety, but I don't understand how that may, would make a child more safe.
0: Well, because it's like if they're doing something like having sex when they're young, that's very hurtful. And so you go and tell someone.
1: If they're not going to do anything about it, I just, I don't understand. Oh, if they're, oh if they're not, yeah. <laughs> they might like, not. It'd be different if they're like, oh, you know. Uh, we're going to bust them. Yeah, we're going to go to their house and say no more. We're going to, I don't know, give them a sex talk or something. But, I mean, if it's just like I report them to the police and the police don't do anything. Yeah. I just, I don't really understand the purpose.
0: Yeah, it kind of brings up something about uh, our laws, right, and sexuality. It's like everything's kind of helter-skelter right now, right? It seems like, you know, what used to be laws or what is laws on the book, books probably isn't really enforced. Right. You know, so it's... Um, I mean, is it is it now illegal to have sex when you're underage? I would imagine it still is. Yeah. I haven't heard anything different. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's always been illegal yeah. if you're under a certain age to participate in sex. And there is... The, Still, things I think on the book called statutory rape for people that are old, over the age of 18 to have right. sex with people under the age of 18. Right. So, that one I was aware of. One, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I imagine so. I mean, I've never heard anything where it's illegal. Yeah. You know, where two consensual people under the age of 18 could have sex. Yeah. You know, um, you know, from what I've read before, is like things like even masturbation were like considered <laughs> illegal at one point.
1: So it was during more of the puritanical phase of our yeah, country. that's right. Yeah, I could I not imagine that law being in effect right now.
0: <laughs> well, you know, if we keep going the way we're going, maybe we'll have cameras all over, our, uh, everywhere, yeah. like even in our houses, where you know an alarm will go off if you touch yourself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and all the thirteen-year-olds out there will be like, "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> <You know? laughs> Freaking out, right? <laughs> I know it's it's wild, right? It's it, it, it's definitely interesting, but it, it sounds like an interesting deal, anyway. This other one is from MSNBC. It's sex addiction, brainwaves cast doubt on disorder. So it says, in the recently updated version of its hugely influential mental health handbook, the DSM-5. Whoa. And uh, the American Psychiatric Association included new disorders like binge eating and hoarding, but left out sex addiction. So this is in October, by the way, of 2017. So it is up to date. Um, mental health professionals don't agree on how to identify, classify, or treat sex addiction, formerly known as hypersexual disorder, in a new study challenging whether this blurry condition can truly be called an addiction. What are you laughing at? This is an awesome name. Hyper,
1: hypersexual disorder. That's right. It's like, how much sex do you have to have to have hypersexual disorder? You know,
0: rabbits? Rabbits are hypersexual. <laughs> and I think... I don't know if it's a disorder because that's the way they were built. <laughs> so there must be a foundation for what is. There's a number. There's a, there's num- a, there's a number. <laughs> there's a number. And if you pass that number. <laughs> you
1: are hyper. You are hyper sexually disordered.
0: You could tell me and Peter we're having a little casual podcast <laughs> this time, right? That's we right. need one after all the stuff we talk about. All the about, serious stuff. All man. the serious <laughs> stuff. Just... We need we need one where we laugh a little and just kind of <laughs> kind of giggle about some of this stuff cuz it is so serious all the time. <laughs> but it is. It does bring up that good point that there is a number. So if you do if you do have sex with your wife a little more than what is said to be the right amount, then you probably are a hypersexual disorder. (laughs) So it doesn't matter if you're monogamous, if you're, you know, into polygamy or polyandry, or you're into what kind of, um, you know, homosexual, it doesn't matter. Right. Whatever, however we slice this, if you do it too many times... It's hyper. It's hypersexual <laughs> disorder. That's what it says. <laughs> when people with signs of hypersexual disorder look at pornographic images, they don't experience brainwave patterns traditionally associated with addiction. The neat new research suggests. I love how it's always changing,
1: yeah. man. <laughs> right? It's new, man. It's got to be true.
0: That's right. Because if I pull out, if I pull out the 1980s, you know, Patrick Carnes. Christian book on recovery of sex addiction where is it where is my Patrick Carnes book of whoa of sexual addiction i don't even know where it went but everything's addiction there you know it's like you know and uh you know if a uh, you know, just sex addictions used all over the place. And we have this book right here, actually, that we went through a chapter of. Mm. Um, we're not going to tell you what it is because it's top secret. <laughs> um, but anyway, this book had a chapter on it that talked about everything being addiction too. Yeah. You know, all kinds of addictions. But um, this thing seems to change quite a bit, don't it? Right. You know.
1: But this time is for reals, man. This This, time, this one's for real? This one's going to stick.
0: Okay. So it says the brain on porn, UCLA psychiatry researcher Nicole Praz, which if you're from UCLA, we know you're on top of things because this is Santa Monica area. I mean, this is Westwood. It's Ivy League. That's right. Bel Air is really close. Smart people. That's right, man. That's right. Even though right down the road from Bel Air is a place called Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> which is kind of – Okay. Anyway, this this um, researcher says and her colleagues, they recu- okay, so here's the test. They recruited 39 men and 13 women who had trouble controlling their porn viewing habits with varying degrees of severity. For example, some participants merely wanted to look at less porn. Others got in trouble with the spouse. But the more extreme cases resulted in job loss, Prowse told Live Science. So w- this is what we experience a lot of times in the ministry, right, a variety of people. Right. Variety of situations. So they kind of take that, just a big, wide um, group. And it says, In the study that participants were shown a battery of images, including a set that merely hinted at sex and others that showed explicit penetration, all mixed in with more pictures not intended to cause sexual arousal, such as a photo of a mutilated body or someone preparing food. Okay. 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 <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. If, do you want to comment on that? <laughs> That's an interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to where this goes. Yeah. The researchers used, oh, this is cool EEG, which yeah. is electroencephalography, a non-evasive technique that uses a skull cap of electrodes to measure brain waves. So it's very, very Frankenstein-like. Right. Right? And um, so they put this on them, and and then it says, To look at the neural activity patterns the participants experienced around 300 milliseconds after viewing each image. In previous studies, brain waves and drug addicts surged at this 300 millisecond mark, or P300 when they were shown pictures of drug paraphernalia. Okay, so if the people with porn problems who were looking at sexually explicit images showed around are similarly, similarly P300 activity, this might have suggested that their excessive habits could be linked to drug addiction. Hmm. But pros didn't find any such pattern. So there it is. It's a done deal. We can lock it up. Throw away the key. It's never <laughs> going to be another article on this, right? Right. It says there was no rush of P300 brain waves associated with more severe self reported problems with sexual stimuli. The factor that best predicted a strong response to these pictures was having a high libido, process. says. So th- the factor that best predicted a strong response to these pictures was having a strong libido, meaning if you did. Have hypersexual, probably things, right? Then maybe the the brain waves did get activated, <laughs> right? Right? So it really has nothing to do with the pictures as much as it has to do with the libido, right? The libido's cranking, the brain's cranking, right? That's right, I guess. <laughs> Something like that. Something. Or is like it that. the brain that's engaging the libido? Ooh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Okay, so so they don't know what it is. Uh, they just call it uh, hypersexual disorder, it looks like. <laughs> that's what they're calling it. Um, so, and um, that, there it is. So, that's another good article from MSNBC. It's actually by Megan Gannon. Cool. So, what do you think of that?
1: I mean... Um... <clears throat> I, I think it's cool that they're they're doing these studies and they're they're going through it. Um, I mean, for for my personal two cents on it, I think that you know we've we've talked about this topic before, uh, but my Have own we? personal yeah, <laughs> yeah my own personal two cents on it would be just that. First of all, when we're talking about sexuality, the the issue is you're dealing with something that is a naturally occurring thing, so it's it's not like you know, doing heroin or snorting cocaine, which are things that are not naturally occurring. Meaning, um, my body does not naturally produce cocaine, right? It doesn't naturally produce heroin. I have to inject it into my body, right. um, and then it affects my brain chemistry in a different way. Whereas um, with sex, or even viewing pornography, the chemicals that are going off my brain are naturally occurring. They're mm-hmm. things my brain naturally produces on its own. Right, and. Um, even if you could make the argument, well, some drugs just seem to um, really, really just increase um, naturally occurring chemicals. That, that's true. But you have to also remember that, once again, you don't have to, we as a species don't need to do heroin to, can, can, to continue. But we do have to have sex, right? If we don't have sex, the species dies out. It's a, it's a natural functioning of all people. So um, it's something that obviously we're, we're all supposed to do at some points in time. So putting it in the addiction category is always um, something strange to me. And that being said though, it is always important, and I'm glad that they're getting this label off of it, because it's always important to understand that there's varying levels. And when you just slap sex addiction on everybody, then you won't be able to understand the levels. So for instance, when they're talking about hoarding disorder, it's like there's 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 a vast difference between someone who just is lazy and doesn't throw out some stuff to some of the people that literally are hoarding everything that they have and that when you try to throw out something, even though their their house is filled with feces and it's filled, you know, you can watch these people on YouTube or on A&E and stuff, they'll have videos on them where literally, their house will just reek of vomit and urine and feces. But if you go into and, a
0: person's house and they got a little bit of feces, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> then it's okay. Yeah, then we're good. Because we all make accidents, you know. Then and we're then we're just a little bit. That's <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, right? But you know, when you try to even throw away something, th- something that's horrible, it's garbage. They'll they'll fight you on it. Like they'll be they'll be very upset. And there's a world of difference between someone who just again, doesn't, doesn't make their uh, monthly run to the dumpster as opposed to somebody who uh, is like that. And the same thing is true when it comes to sexuality. And we've talked about this before with libidos and things like that. But there's a, there's a vast difference between someone who, you know, even from an atheist perspective, there's a vast difference between someone who views pornography on occasion and has sex on occasion, like has sex with their wives and, uh, or even girlfriend or whatever, uh, on occasion, as opposed to somebody who is, and you know, I've had a student like this. I know you've probably had people like this, too, who was viewing pornography nine times a day. You know, he was he was viewing pornography. Right.
0: nonstop, nonstop, Non-stop. And, to, and, and not masturbating to get, five times a day. Right. To the point where they're actually injuring themselves. Right. Not to get too graphic, but yeah, he right. was
1: actually sustaining physical injuries from right. the amount that he was self-gratifying and the amount that he was. Um,
0: Which is no laughing matter. Right. It's
1: not. And so there's a, there's a world of difference between the two. Yeah. But if I said, hey, this dude over here who views pornography four or five times a month, um, has sex 10 to 15 times a month with their spouse or their girlfriend or whatever, and I'm going to take that person I'm going to lump it in the same category as this dude who literally can't go four hours without viewing porn uh, on a smartphone or on his laptop or whatever, it, it it's uh it's definitely association fallacy. It doesn't it doesn't really work. Where on the other hand, like we've talked about before, with drug addiction, it it, it kind of is that way. Where someone can't just be like, well, I only use, I only shoot up heroin like five times a month. Yeah, I'm not an addict. You know, like that's that's an issue. I would look at that person and be like, well, you you have an issue. Yeah, there may be people who use more than you, but you are doing something that is unhealthy for you, right? It's gonna hurt you and in the long run. It's very bad for you to do that. Um, but the difference is that the person who's doing that the sexual things that I talked about, the first guy who's you know viewing four or five times and having sex 10 to 12 times a month or whatever, there's no physical consequences for that. Meaning that that person's not going to have a shorter life expectancy. Their life's not going to be you know in jeopardy. They're not going to get some sort of weird disease that nothing's going to happen to that person that's bad. Um, now, spiritually, I could look at that and say, it's probably not good that you're doing pornography or doing things like that. But physically, I can't say that.
0: Yeah, we come at it from a theological angle.
1: That's right. So there's an ethical reason why I might look at that person and say, you shouldn't do that. But when you're talking about addiction, you're talking about a physically disruptive behavior. You're not talking ethics anymore, right? That's that's not the issue when you're talking about addictive behavior. You're not talking ethics. You're talking physical ailments.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting because you know from the last article we were looking at on MSNBC, sex addiction brainwaves cast out on disorder it's talking about that this hypersexual disorder right so so you know would you lump someone who is has a a very hypersexual monogamous christian marriage as an addiction right would you say to someone who's you know and you go well. It could be, you know. Let me sit down with them. Like, okay, how many times do you do it a day? Right.
1: Is he demanding sex from his wife like five and, or six but times? But what if a they day?
0: both are like into it? They're yeah. both like, hey They're man, both. we're we're digging this. And again,
1: I would I would sit down and be like, is it disrupting your life? Like, right. are you are yeah. you having <laughs> sex for like six hours a day? You're dropping your kids off with a sitter. Like, you can't even hang out. You know. That you, would be a little hypersexual. Have a job. I would that would be, like, be hypersexual. I'd disorder. be like, yeah. You know, you're you're calling your wife during right. the day. But have, that you know. I don't
0: know if that ever happened. So yeah, that gnarly. I've
1: and, never, you know, I've never heard of it happening. Right, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, discounting it that it can't happen. I'm just. But when I've you
0: do start using those labels of addiction, then it does get kind of crazy. Then with, you lump everyone in then the same you start, category. Yeah, you start going, oh, hypersexual. That person, you know, uh, does have a lot of sex with their spouse, and and they enjoy each other. They're having a blast. They're in their 20s. They're in their 30s. They're, you know, they're they're just their their bodies can take it. You know, they're not doing anything harmful to themselves they're not doing anything harmful to anybody else um it's all within their marriage bed their their wedding bed um yet someone might look at them still in the professional world and go hey that's hypersexual activity because you know i mean let's face it people in porn don't have sex seven times a day right um, you know, even a porn actress is going to be like, or a porn actor is going to be like, wow, that's quite a bit, <laughs> like every day, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, it, you know, that's the difficulty, right though, is you do start putting these labels on people that really do have a, just a healthy, um, relationship with their spouse. I'm talking about a conservative couple here. Right. And, um. And, and now they're wrong. Now they're now they're labeled hypersexual because it's over the number right. um, of what is the quote standard right. of normality. Right. Um, so it, when you read another article, um, this one's from Time. This one talks about is sex addiction real too? Uh, and this one's called Is Sex Addiction Real? Here's what experts say. And this is from, uh, I think this is a recent article too. Um, is sex addiction real? It depends on who you ask. Hollywood stars and industry heads who have cited it in defense of reported sexual indiscretions ranging from infidelity to harassment to rape may argue that it is. Over the last couple decades, celebrities including David, what's that guy? Do you know that DeCalfney. guy? Coffney he know, was in the X-Files. I don't know. Oh, Dukop, yeah, I remember. Yeah. That was a while back. Yeah. <laughs> I think I even mentioned that in my book back in 2007. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I didn't even remember. Tiger Woods um, and uh, Harvey Weinstein, which that's recently. That's uh, very recently. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I remember. I, re- I was listening. Kevin Spacey have made similar announcements uh, after accusations of misconduct. So what they're saying is that mostly after someone kind of comes out with some kind of bad conduct of cheating on their spouse, um, getting caught in a strip club, or something like that, right? Right. Uh, th- raping, right. Uh, molesting people.
1: This is what Harvey Weinstein was ultimately was doing. accused of, Then yeah. they
0: come out and go, man, I'm a sex addict. Right. Right? So among scholars and medical experts, the consensus is, is less clear. And just this week, three nonprofit organizations came out against the notion that sex or pornography can be addicting, saying the term can be misleading or even, even harmful to people seeking help for intimate issues. Hmm. So, these are three nonprofits. I'm not sure which nonprofits. I think they're going to mention them here, but um, but obviously, there's many nonprofits that would say it is right. too. You know, right. so this this so we go back and forth. But I, I like that they're saying that it, it could be harmful. You know. Yeah. Um, The new position statement drafted by the Center for Positive Sexuality, so our listeners can kind of understand what this is coming from, the side it's coming from, Uh, CPS, Center for Positive Sexuality, and, uh, and the Alternative Sexualities Health Research Alliance and the National Coalition for Sexual Freedoms is published this week in the online journal of positive sexuality. It follows a similar statement last year from the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, which also spoke out against the idea of sex or porn addiction. In their statement, the advocacy groups write that the perceptions of sexual addictions may have more to do with people's religious or cultural beliefs than of actual scientific data. The concept of sex addiction emerged in the 1980s as a social conservative response to cultural anxieties, which I even talked about Patrick Carnes' books. Um, Already on the podcast, the authors wrote, and has gained acceptance through its reliance on medicalization and popular cultural visibility. So, um, Peter, what do you think about this statement that, sexual addictions, quote, addictions, have more to do with people's religious or cultural beliefs. What are they trying to get at with that?
1: So it's, it's kind of what we've already been saying already, where um, when we're talking about a man and a woman who are married and they're having monogamous intimacy in their house, I'm far less likely to label someone like that um, a sex addict. addict, regardless of how much sex they're having. Um, but if someone's in a homosexual relationship or if somebody is in a, what we would call like a, um, a pedophilic relationship with a, with a minor, or if somebody is, you know, viewing pornography, uh, or any, anything like that, I'm more likely to label that person a sex addict, not because of the frequency in which they engage in sexual activity, but because in the format, the format, right. The, my own personal bias against it. Yeah. And, uh, so, yeah, it, that's that's pretty important to understand,
0: yeah, um, in the topic,
1: in the topic, yeah, absolutely. And so uh, personally, you know I, I think that this guy, I've quoted him before, Francis Bufford, I think he really did answer correctly why the Christian uh, Church and even Mormons and uh, other religious groups like that have moved in this direction. And he said the reason is because we're looking for shock value for our culture. And what he meant by that is like if I look at someone and say, you know, you're sinning sexually. Right, that doesn't mean anything to an atheist because they're an atheist. Right, they don't they don't care right. about God.
0: they're yeah. not they're not interested. I, I never remembered. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when someone told me about sex stuff, I uh, it went over my head. Right <laughs> before I came to Christ. Right. So no if clue I what they were talking about.
1: So yeah, if I'm if I'm going into schools or whatever, if I'm talking to to young people and I'm trying to tell them they shouldn't view porn, they shouldn't have sex before marriage, if I just say it's a sin, that doesn't really do anything for anybody anymore. So I instead got to seek into my uh, sink into my vocabulary and find a word that's going to be destructive like addict. So now if I go to an atheist and say, you know, if you do this too often you become a sex addict. The word addict is so lab- it's so loaded, right? That so many different things floats inside of his mind where that would make somebody who's unaware of this topic altogether. That would make an atheist say like, hmm, maybe maybe there is something to that. Maybe I should you know, seek help. Maybe maybe there's something going on in me that, that could be destructive in the future. So, in essence, what he's saying is it was it was an attempt from the religious community to put our ethics on the country using their verbiage. Um, and, and he goes on. Man, and that's a
0: powerful point. Yeah. And it makes sense. You know, I mean, I could see how that really happens. Yeah. You know, because when you do tell someone they're an addict at anything. Right. You know, I'm a food addict. It's like, whoa, whoa, bro. Like, you know, I'm an internet addict. Wow. I'm a phone addict. Wow. You know, you do have that kind of shock value to it. That's right. That's right.
1: So obviously, when you you keep reading his article, he goes on to actually say how how in an attempt to help people, it's actually hurt more people than it's helped. And his main reason is Mm. because essentially what you've done is you've taken God out of the topic. So now instead of me sitting down with someone saying like, "Hey, let's have a conversation about God," instead I'm like, "Hey, let's talk about addiction," right? Which might be a positive conversation depending on how you flip it, but either way, it's not going to lead them to God. You know, if I'm like, "Hey, let's talk about your sex addiction," that might motivate an atheist to maybe work on their sexuality, but it's not going to motivate an atheist to go towards God.
0: Yeah, so it's so so good, and that's our goal, right? Is always to bring people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? And And not get on all these rabbit trails that it seems like we can get on, man, that's for sure. I remember doing a presentation this year for around 70 women that were there being trained by the district attorney in Maricopa County and another organization that deals with sex trafficking and some police officers and they all did presentations and then I did a presentation and it was on uh, the porn to sex trafficking bridge and and during the Q&A time I challenged them on this issue by just saying giving him that scenario of okay say a person is with his wife monogamous relationship and he has sex every day okay they like to have sex every day and then I said okay and then let's take another person who's bisexual and they he has sex with a different partner every day sometimes it's it's a guy sometimes it's a girl you know is the first person a sex addict and they all went no and I said is the second person a sex addict and they him and Hod and were like, uh, uh, and they were kind of debating amongst themselves. Right. You know, and they kind of, some of them caught themselves kind of going, oh, I could see the the problem here. Right. But most of them didn't. Right. Most of them just went, like, uh, they were, like, nodding, like, yeah, you <laughs> know, like, isn't that the right answer? Yes. Right. They're a sex addict. So, so, morality is what determines sex addiction. Right. You know, so if you don't fit into my moral code, then you're addicted. Right. So, and and if that's the case, then then if we're going to broaden it there, then, G, then, you know, Jesus says, everybody who looks at a woman and lust in his heart after her has committed adultery, meaning that, <laughs> that lust is also another sign of, Wrong behavior, sexual behavior in your mind. Right. Then you know, really, we're all. Then we can all be thrown under the bus we're of all addiction. We're all sex addicts. We're all sex addicts. How many
1: times do you commit adultery a day? You know, right. Like, right. In your mind, like, you know, like
0: yeah. five. I saw. I yeah. saw that girl. I thought it was five times. You know, yeah. and they're like, "You're an addict." Yeah, <laughs> you're an addict. You yeah. know, you're a mental yeah. <laughs> hypersexual sex addict. You know? and,
1: and I think that's another really amazing and interesting point. And that is like my own personal belief, Uh, Francis Buffer doesn't say this, but my own personal belief is that um, another reason why a religious person would use terminologies like this is to also avoid the sin in their own life. Meaning, if I I start labeling people out in the world sex addicts, phone addicts, food addicts, uh, internet addicts, whatever, essentially what I'm doing is I'm now putting everybody else in the world in a category that I myself do not occupy. So instead of looking at somebody who, you know, in the, in the world who views pornography or has sex with their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, and looking at them and talking about the biblical sex, sex ethic as given to us by God, and instead of me lumping myself in the same category with them and saying like, hey man, like this sexual thing that you're doing, right? The Bible does call it sin. And you know what? I fall to this sin all the time. You know, and, and what the point of the Bible is, is that Christ came for sinners, and we're all sinners, and this is what he did about our sin problem, right? So instead of me doing that, I instead could just point the finger at someone and be like, well, you're a sex addict, right? That's that's a big and, issue. And,
0: and I love that, you know, Jesus did not do that. Right. You know, I think if we're going to get back to Jesus, we just don't see Jesus coming up to people and saying, hey, man, you're, you're an alcoholic. Right. You know, or you're a drug addict. Right. You know, instead it was always... It was always just, man, loving people and confronting them, but doing it in a way that um, was so different than how we do it today. Right. Um, you know, it's kind of weird that Jesus even didn't really even give too many, like, giant messages. No. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, you think of... Here you have God in human flesh. You think this guy would be the master sermon master, you know? I mean, we listen to tons of ministers give messages yeah. and these sermons, and we think, "Oh, that's that's what's important. Yeah. That's what's important." And and Jesus comes on the scene and gives how many messages, yeah. you know? Um, so short, right? Yeah. Are most of his talks that we have recorded, and. Um, you know, the, you can read through the Sermon on the Mount in a matter of minutes. Um, and uh, so obviously he must have elaborated on these things, <laughs> you know, yeah. made it all a little longer, you know, because everything had to be 45 minutes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. You know, yeah. but yeah, but you love Jesus' examples of really dealing with the human heart. Yeah. You know, um, which is really cool. So... Um, then we are going to jump to uh, focus on the family. Uh, focus on the family uh, aired uh, Pastor Levi Lusko's um, interviews, returning to a Godly perspective on sex and romance, and I'll post this too on here so people could check it out. There's a there's a part one, there's a part two, and Pastor Levi is interviewed and talks about his book um, Swipe right right <laughs>
1: swipe right yeah we always
0: want to say well, last, swipe left. yesterday yeah. i <laughs> said swipe left and peter corrected me i am so out of the loop with know, swiping because
1: i'm so young and hip yeah I, I know exactly what's going down
0: yeah and, and and i'm so old now that and creaky that i mean obviously dating sites weren't even close to being around like so i don't even um i have no clue about that stuff at all yeah. you know um, I
1: mean, if it makes you feel any better, I only I only learned about it, I think, a month ago when yeah, <laughs> someone I was counseling told
0: like me about a, it. Because you're an old man yeah. in a young person's body. <laughs> That's why we get along so well, which is cool. That's right. And uh, overall, I thought it was uh, very cool. And Levi's just got a wonderful gift to articulate and um, share really cool um he has these allegories and these different statistical things that he brings out, and he talks about a pineapple, and he talks about this, and sharks. and yeah. I mean, they all have cool things. I can't remember them because right. I'm so old. I just don't remember that stuff. But, um, but uh, um, you know, hey… They're, I think they're they're cool when he's sharing them. I'm always like, wow, that's interesting, you know, kind of thing. One thing he shared that I, I found was kind of troubling to me personally was a passage in the book of Hebrews, where it says, um, and he talked about this in reference to not going after the sexual pleasure that's just before you, but waiting for the blessings of God and the inheritance of God that it says in this passage. He says, uh, verse 16 of Hebrews 12, See that no one uh, is sexual immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Mm -hmm. And he brought up that passage, and he talked a little bit about Genesis 25, about Esau and Jacob, and about their lives, and about the uh, the event where Esau comes in from the field, and he's hungry, and he basically sells his birthright, which was a big deal, to his younger brother over some awesome clam chowder i guess yeah. you know something like that
1: yeah red lentil maybe that's right yeah i don't know if it's clam chowder yeah.
0: i don't think they were in new england were they i don't think so yeah <laughs> but um anyway it, the reason why it bothered me it was i just i just you know in ministering to men we we are always with guys that feel this way they feel like hebrews chapter 12 Verse 17. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. So they feel rejected. And it says, he could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. So they they already come into our groups, a lot of them going, man, I'm I'm rejected. I'm toast. Some of them, their marriage is really, really hitting it. Divorce maybe is right there or maybe already happened right. um, And it would be tough to bring up this passage to one of those people and say Hey man, you know what, you sold your birthright for sexual pleasure
1: hmm.
0: Why Why do you think that, why I have a problem with that?
1: So it's like When you look at this passage and you, and you go through Genesis uh, the, the clear thing that's being spoken of when it says he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. There's, there's kind of two ways you could take that, and, and both ways are an important thing to understand because if you don't take it one of these two ways, you're going to be condemned. Meaning if I take it the way that most Christians would take it and read it and say, oh, like if I've fallen too far, I can't come back. I can never come back. I've I've lost my way with God, and I just can't repent. I can't come back. Um, but the, the two ways that you could actually take it, the first way you could take it when it says he sought repentance and didn't find it, even though he sought it diligently with tears, it's most likely referring to the moment where he's sitting with his dad, and he's crying because Jacob has now twice stolen his birthright, once with a bowl of soup and then another with actual physical deception with his dad. And even though Esau was crying, he did not get the birthright, meaning he couldn't come back. He could not receive the birthright again. And both him and Isaac knew that it was a lost cause because Esau knew it was a lost cause because he'd already traded it. And Isaac knew it was a lost cause because God had already declared that Jacob was going to be the inheritor of the estate. So basically, even though Esau sought it, he never got it. That's the first way you could take it. And if I were to apply that, to somebody's personal life, let's say they have engaged in a lot of sexual immorality and um, let's say their wife is just done, they're gonna leave. You know, I I could apply it maybe there and be like, hey, look, man, like, you know, you could repent before God and you could get forgiven before God and you can go after him and that's what you should do, but it doesn't mean that your wife will stay. You know, she might still leave even though you seek her to stay with tears. And if you, if I say it that way, I hope you guys realize that that's a very hopeful statement. That's, yes, there are physical consequences to what you've done, but there is spiritual restoration in Christ. And actually, if you take it that way, the passage does read very next part where he talks about, we have not come to a mountain that can't be touched or burned with fire and blackened with darkness and tempest. He's referring to Mount Sinai, that God came down in in glory in in the book of Exodus, and the people couldn't even touch the mountain. He says, instead, we have come to a new mountain with our mediator, who is Christ, meaning that we as Christians, we're not in a fearful relationship with God, where we can't even come near his holiness, but we have a relationship with God where his holiness actually dwells in us, and we have a relationship with Christ through what he's done. So there's a lot of hope to be found if you take it that way. Um, Another way you can take it, As you could also take it in, like, well, why does it say in say the Book of Malachi that Esau, God says, Esau I have hated, yet Jacob I have loved? You know what? What was it about Esau that God wasn't really jiving with? And you could look at it and say, well, it was his, you know, sexual morality, right? Well, no. When you really look at Esau and Jacob, Jacob committed probably more sexual morality than Esau did, right? He he had uh, married two sisters and had sex with their mates, right? So that's that's pretty what? severe. What? Yeah. <laughs> no way! <Yeah. laughs> so I mean, if I, if I was gonna look at it that way, it would be like, mm, no, I think Jacob did a little worse there. And secondly, I mean, look at the dude's life. He lied and manipulated his parents to get what he wanted. Um, he was a deceiver, right? He was a trickster. So it can't be Esau's sin, right? That can't be it. There has to be something else and what we see is that when you go through the life of the twins, the only real difference between Esau and Jacob is at some point, Jacob was broken by God, and he came to God and submitted. right? So Esau never did that. right? You never see Esau do that. He, in fact, runs off and starts his own tribe called the Edomites. Um, so th- what what made God hate Esau and love Jacob? It was actually an issue of pride, not an issue of sin. Because right? you could argue in a lot of ways that Jacob was actually the worst sinner of the two. Um, but the difference was is that Esau's pride kept him from pursuing God in humility and receiving repentance that way. He tried to get it through works.
0: Yeah, so he developed—so you're saying Esau developed a, a kind of a, what we call a worldly sorrow.
1: Right, a worldly sorrow. A sorrow that he wasn't getting what he wanted, but not a sorrow that he offended God and wanted a relationship with him. So he tried to get what he wanted through his own might, whereas Jacob— God brought him to a place where he realized, I can't, and he submitted to God, and then God changed his name from Jacob, which means a heel catcher, a deceiver. Um, He changed his name to Israel, which means God contends, meaning it's a brand new name that inspired uh, Jacob to realize, like, I don't need to contend for my own life. God contends for me, which is really cool. Um, But unfortunately, if if, if I listened to someone say that, of just like, you know, you don't want to be like Esau, who... Um, For a morsel of food, gave up his birthright, and he never found repentance. The easiest way that I could take it is I could take it of like, if I commit sexual immorality or if I commit too much, what's in jeopardy there is my relationship with God. right? I cannot have a renewed relationship with God. I cannot find forgiveness. And that's a very different issue.
0: Okay, let's listen to him and just hear how he's doing this, okay? Okay. Okay, let's listen. I don't know if you guys will be able to listen out there, but we're going to play it. Uh,
1: you mentioned the Esau syndrome, which caught my attention again. What did you mean by the Esau syndrome
0: Well, Hebrews, when it comes to sexuality? yeah, Hebrews 12 says of Esau, watch out for the Esau syndrome. This is the message translation. Trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. Here's the warning I have for young people, and one of the reasons I really wrote this book. I think it's real easy to trade what you want most for what feels good right now. Any of us can do something in minutes that would feel great. But we would regret so you got the main point, right? So he basically, I mean, it's a, it's the right, it's the right thing, right? It's just, it, it's like, it makes sense, but I don't know if I, I, I like the application of it, right? Of the passage, right? You know, am I, you know, am I tracking with you?
1: Yeah, so I mean, because, obviously, if I sat down with Levi and I was like, "Hey, man, like, did you mean that someone who commits sexual morality can't find repentance?" Like, obviously, he would say, "No, absolutely not." Obviously, they can. Right? That's the whole point of his book. But uh, the issue is, is that when you quote a passage like that, that has an ending like this,
0: where it says he sought <sighs> it with tears, man, but he never, did, couldn't, couldn't got it, he and never found it, it yeah. and
1: you never explain that part. Um, you just quote it, and then you focus on the issue of you don't want to be like Esau, who for you know short-term gain had long-term pain, right? He he did something that felt good in the moment, but regretted it later.
0: Yeah, the Esau syndrome.
1: Right, the Esau syndrome, and that's that's the point that he's getting at. And uh, I get it, you know, and that that application point is valid, meaning that sin often is that way, where you do have a short-term pleasure in what you're doing. But there's long-term consequences for your actions.
0: Yeah, and and, and what, what what Sometimes I think if it's not really explained properly and really really delved into in the context, um, and and really sought the right way to apply that passage, then it almost becomes a path. The way it's quoted, like the Esau syndrome, it almost makes me go. Man, like you know, it makes me not want to admit sin. It makes me, you know, no matter what, it's like I I always wanna put up a shield. Right. Because the last thing I want is to have the Esau syndrome, right, you know, where I'm not gonna be able like that, you know, I'm I'm kind of in this really bad like, you know, the Esau syndrome sounds kinda bad. Right. You know, it kind of labels me as like, man, I really and then and You messed up and then most people we work with have messed up, right? You know, so they're already in the Esau syndrome,
1: right? And and again, you know, this is something where You know, if I were to look through the Bible and find people who chose Short-term gain for long-term pain, it's all of them, right? Did did, did Abraham do that? Absolutely. He did that, right? He went down to Egypt lied about his uh, relationship with Sarah to try to prevent his death. So, in order to get a short-term profit, he ended up compromising his marriage and compromising the lives of everyone involved. Right? You got Judah had sex with his own uh, daughter-in-law, thought she was a prostitute. Right. So that's that's another example that led to consequences. You have Lot having sex with his daughters, producing the Amorites and the Moabite people to major enemies of Israel for years to come. Right. So you have. You have myriads, thousands of examples throughout the Bible of people who did this, right? What what he's talking about. But all those people were forgiven and used by God. What is it that makes Esau Esau? Is it that he wanted something short term and ignored consequences? I would argue that's a part of what was wrong with Esau, but that's not what's being argued in Hebrews 12, meaning that's not what made Esau Esau. What made Esau, Esau, was, he actually says it, despising the birthright, right? Not wanting a relationship with God, wanting his way all the time, right? That's what made Esau, Esau. And uh, he's using it as an example for people in the church at this point. You know, when you read through the book of Hebrews, he's speaking to these Jewish believers who were going back to the old covenant because they didn't want to suffer for the new covenant. Right. Yeah. They didn't want to suffer uh, and be kicked out of the synagogues that they were a part of. They want to just be like, well, can't we just go to the synagogues and go to the temple? It's familiar to us. We enjoy it. But in our hearts, believe Christ. Yeah, And the writer of Hebrews' whole point throughout the Bible is there is nothing left to go back to. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for us. And if you go back to the Old Covenant, you're going back to something that's dead.
0: Right. And the contrast is one of putting your faith in the New Covenant, because the next chapter of Hebrews, he discusses faith. Right. And so if, if I took Esau and I contrasted Esau with the the people of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, mm. I would have to go, okay, what is different between <laughs> Esau and these men? Like right. Samson
1: say? is a is one that's mentioned. That's right. And Samson is definitely a poster child of someone <laughs> who chose short-term gain for long-term pain. That's right.
0: Know? That's right. So we know that that can't be the application, right? You know, because of that. Because so it's got to be a faith issue, right? So what it is is it's one of of Esau did not have faith, right? He didn't believe in God, right? And these other guys though they did very similar things in life. A
1: lot of a lot of ways. Because like Esau Esau's big sin that's mentioned here is he Married. traded his birthright for a bowl of soup, right? right? That's that's what's mentioned here. Is that really like a cosmic offense? Is that like a horrible thing? Like if I if I'm somebody who has like a birthright or something from my dad or an inheritance and someone offers me a clam chowder. And I give it up. It makes me stupid, but doesn't make me like the worst sinner, you know, especially compared to people like Gideon, who had multiple wives and set up an idol at the end of his life, or Samson had multiple affairs, yeah. a- a- shacked up with Delilah, right?
0: Gideon's he- name was Baal. <laughs> right, <laughs> Jerbaal, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's like, I mean, oh, it's like, So man. you got some
1: pretty heinous people mentioned in Hebrews 11, and the question has to be, what's what's the whole overarching point of the book of Hebrews? It's works versus faith, right? What justifies us before God? You can't go back to works because works are dead, right? They're gone. Christ has come. We need to put our faith in him. And what's the problem with Esau? Esau's problem is pride, right? Trying to get his own way in his own strength his whole life. And the, the soup is just an example of that. It's just he wants what he wants when he wants it, right?
0: Yeah, and so the Esau syndrome, if we really were to define it, it's really one of— pride and disbelief right you know that's really the esau syndrome right yeah and i and i and you know you know my pet peeves are always whenever sometimes things are put the way they're put like esau syndrome um it it seems like what they always tend to do is you know it's always me as a leader saying to someone hey don't fall into the esau syndrome cuz that's bad I mean, I've never fell into it, but don't fall into it, you know. It it always comes off kind of that way out of my mouth, I I feel like that, you know, where we just work with so many people that are so knee-deep in the Eatsaw syndrome, that coming at it from that perspective um, of short-term gain, long-term pain. Hmm. But I have a a really interesting um, discernment that at the end of all of our lives— if that's how we define the Esau syndrome as short-term gain, long-term pain, that we will all come to a place where we realize there's many things that we did were short-term gain. The way we've taught our kids, the way we acted with our kids, the fears that are in our life, the insecurities that are in our life, the things that we did for short-term gain and reputation Mm. and prestige, All the short-term gain, short-term gain. um, You know, you can look, you can take that. If you want to take that example, we can take it and we can use it and say, you know what? At the end of all of our lives, we might have some serious short-term gain, long-term pain. Right. You know, where we realize, man, we really messed up. Right. We chose wrong. What we thought was in the spirit was really in the flesh. Hmm. And and it was for our own feeling of good, that, oh, I feel good, and our own self-preservation, so to speak. So, you know, that's why I struggled with that one a little bit. Yeah, Yeah,
1: and I think I told you yesterday, Bo, that there was actually one of the men in the groups, he came to me, not about this passage, but about a, a similar passage. He was reading in Revelation where... Uh, the Church of Laodicea is called out by Christ, and they said, you know, because you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And the, the point that the pastor is making is like, we don't want to be lukewarm before God. You know, we don't want to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. You know, we need to be all about God. And he says, like, if we don't, you know, God will vomit us out of his mouth. And like, I get, again, I get, I understand the point that he's trying to make. Right, right.
0: And there is is some good to that. (laughs) And there's a lot of good to that, right? right? There's
1: a lot of good to that. But here's this dude who's combating, right? He's doing what the Bible tells us that we should do. He is daily going to war with his flesh. But because he loses sometimes, he looks at it and he says, I must be lukewarm because I got one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world right I, there's obviously something divided about my soul. Um, otherwise I wouldn't do this and so he's thinking,'m the I'm in the church of Laodicea right Jesus has vomited me out of his mouth right I don't have a place with him. And uh, you know I had to read him the whole passage but you know what Jesus says and it's the same deal with Esau is what made the Laodiceans lukewarm And you read and, and actually I'll read it right now because it is it's a very important section. Uh, he says in Revelation three, verse seventeen, because so I'll, I'll read sixteen just so you guys get the reference as well. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So that's the passage that he read. Because so that what makes them lukewarm? Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me. Gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. So, what made them lukewarm? It wasn't their sin. It was their refusal to acknowledge that they were sinners in need of grace. Mm. Right? They were people who thought that they were good enough in their own steam. They said, "Hey, I'm rich. I have right. need of nothing. I'm rich, man. I don't need Jesus. You know, some other people he died for, but I don't. I don't need Jesus. I yeah, Or, I, or I don't a, need
0: forgiveness.
1: I don't need forgiveness. I have a kinship with Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus came to have a uh, have a kind of a colleague relationship with me. He didn't come to be my savior, though. Right? He didn't come to forgive me. He came to just kind of stir me up and let me do things right that's what made them lukewarm that's exactly what made them lukewarm it was not the fact that they were sinning right that they had one foot in the world one foot in the kingdom that's not it um and it's really uh, always an important issue for us as christians to understand
0: yeah and do we want to sin no no do we want people to sin no (laughs) (laughs) no do we want them to do short-term? gain? No, (laughs) you know, we don't want them to, to go out there and experience the STDs that are out there in the world and all the stuff that young people are doing. Um, and they've always done by the way, um, just so people understand it's not a cultural thing. It's always (laughs) happened. Yeah. It's what humans do. And, um, we don't want that, you know, but we just want to be able to understand the word of God too and apply it correctly. Hmm. Um, you know, that's for sure. You know, King David certainly was a sinner. You've mentioned Gideon, all these people. What made them different from guys like Esau? Mm. You know, it certainly wasn't their sin. Right. <laughs> you know, right. So it must have been something else. Okay. Certainly their faith, his, their faith and, and Esau's faith, there was something probably much different mm. in, 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 that aspect of uh, their lives. Mm. You know, um, so. You can be an Abraham, you can be a person who, and a Peter in the New Testament, you can be a Peter who does some serious face planning (laughs) in the book of Galatians, and uh, still be in the kingdom. Uh, Pretty amazing. Um God's grace abounds for sure. Hmm. So hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. We had a great time this one. Yeah. This was kinda of fun and <laughs> it was funny. A fun one. Okay, we ended stuff, on man. some serious notes. Yeah. <laughs> but I put up all the links for you guys too. You could check it out. Listen to Levi's stuff, man. He he does some great, he great does. stuff, man, and really we really enjoy his stuff. Um, So check out his uh, interviews on Focus of the Family. We hope you get a bunch out of that. And if you want to look at these other articles, you certainly can. And and you can reference them as you listen to this podcast. So you guys take care and have a great one. Check out runninglight.org to begin our two video series, Take Flight and Love or Lust. You can also send us questions on Twitter at Running Light or on our runninglight.org podcast page. Like us on Facebook at Running Light Ministries, Psalm 36.8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures.